Hello, welcome to another episode of the Capital Employed Podcast. For this episode, we have the pleasure of being joined by Avi Fisher, founder and manager of Longcast Advisors based in New York. In this episode, Avi talks about his investment style and two microcaps he's bullish on for the long term. Before we begin, every so often we will be doing write-ups about stocks from around the world that have piqued our interest. These will mostly be companies on the smaller end of the market cap scale that go under the radar of most financial media. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, visit capitalemployed.substack.com and add your email to the list. That's capitalemployed.substack.com. Please enjoy my conversation with Avi. Hi, Avi. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me, John. Can you provide a brief introduction of yourself and what is your investing style? I have been an investor since the late 90s when you could begin to invest online. I transitioned my career at the time was in uh, writing, reporting, journalism. I was on the journalism track and I fell in love with investing and transitioned my career from writing and publishing to investing in a series of jobs, including working as a private investigator on uh, private equity deals, working in private equity, and then into sell-side research for about a dozen years at Credit Suisse in the Bank of Montreal, and started my own investment management firm, Longcast Advisors, in 2015. Uh, It's focused on concentrated, small, micro, and nano-cap investing. And I think the style, it's, it's across the board, covers lots of different areas, but I think generally speaking, it's looking for companies that are growing and are reasonably priced. What type of business do you like to invest in? Are there any business characteristics or situations you're looking for? Again, I've seen so many publicly traded companies. There's no one specific style. But I do like companies that have been around a long time where the financials or the operating environment can be, or the operations can be tracked over a long period. If there's one thing I learned in my year working as a private investigator, it's that people tend to repeat their patterns of behavior. And if you can sort of generally get a sense of how they operate, they're likely to continue that. It doesn't mean People who are successful tend to remain successful and people who are failures tend to remain failures, though it's partly like that. But it's just around the way they tend to operate. When I work in the PI firm and even in my work today, I like to talk to people who know management, have worked with management, and get a sense of how they operate. That's pretty critical, I think, in understanding how the companies are likely to operate. Since investing is a futures-focused business and nobody knows a future, I like to look at the past to get a sense of what may, what it may provide for the future. And how do you generate your investment ideas? I wish I could just snap my fingers and find them. I think like anything, it, it ebbs and flows. I mean, I could, I could work the same amount every day, screening, reading, walking around, talking to people. And I'll go through periods where it doesn't seem like I can find any ideas. And then I go through periods where I have too many ideas. I always keep a running list of what I'm looking at. And it's a little bit of art and science. I read a lot. I screen. I talk to people. And I attend conferences and 
when something catches my eye, I try to dig in. And if it's interesting, I keep digging. Well, once you find an interesting company, what does your research process entail? I don't think my research process is that innovative. You know, read all the financials, read all the Q's and K's. I try to go back as early as I can. I, like I said, I like companies that have been around a while. See how the companies write about themselves and define themselves. I have observed in my years investing that occasionally you have companies whose secret sauce might be a little bit different than even what they think, and that they talk or think about themselves as one thing, but there's really an opportunity for them to do something else. Maybe I'll talk a bit a little about that when we talk about the ideas. A, a lot of it is driven by the idea, what don't I know? Or what do other people know that I don't know? I just try to use that as a basis for my research. I keep a blog, or I used to keep a blog much more religiously at thepatientinvestors.blogspot.com. And I used to use that as a way to really hone my ideas because when you write or publish something, you really want to answer all the potential questions. And so it's a way to ask those questions that, what don't I know? I now write quarterly letters for my investment management firm, and that does some of the same things. But it's really, you asked about my research process. It's the same thing everyone else does, but it's driven, you know, reading cues and case. I try as best I can to talk to customers. I reach out and talk to competitors. I like to talk to people who've worked with management in the past before in prior jobs. Again, it's all driven by the idea, what don't I know? What can I know that I don't know? Um, I heard one of your guests the other day talk about investing in companies that do government work and they do FOIA requests. I've done FOIA requests. I, I agree. I used to cover the engineering and construction industry, and that's an area where all the contracts are public. So you're able to dig in. You can see what contracts companies are winning. You could see sometimes what other companies bid. And if they won by a lot, that's usually a bad sign. <laughs> um, trying to learn as much as I can and understanding what don't I know and what other people know that I don't. So if we uh, can jump into your portfolio, if we may, can you talk about two stocks that you feel have great long-term potential? And what was your thesis for investing? I mentioned earlier, like a company that does one thing, but they think they do one thing, but I think they can possibly do something else. It's, I guess, a company that's long been on our portfolio is a company called Quest Resource Holdings. The ticker is QRHC. And like I said, we, I own it in my portfolio. They are, in essence, what's called a waste broker. They are one, quote unquote, one throat to choke for a large organization with multiple locations that needs to deal with its waste. Instead of, uh, say, a, a store manager, a franchise manager at, at Buffalo Wild Wings responsible for making sure their dumpsters picked up every week or two weeks, it's done at the corporate level. At the corporate level, they have a contract with Quest, and then Quest manages the relationship with the actual hauler. And what they say is they'll bid out the work and try to get the lowest price for the customer, and then they'll track across all the locations what waste has been taken, 
And then the customer can have a dashboard understanding what's been taken, where it's gone, how much waste has been diverted, either to recycling or compost. And as you can see, it's fairly important in an ESG-dominated world to have that dashboard. But the way they view their work, it's as an entity that drives the lowest price for their customer by bidding out the work to the haulers. I think that as they grow, their platform to the haulers could become important. That would put them in the middle of essentially a two-sided marketplace uh, where I think ultimately there's much more value. You asked about the thesis when I first started investing. It was roughly, roughly the same. I've, I was an industrial services analyst for many years when I was at uh, Credit Suisse and BMO. And uh, I'm comfortable owning industrial services. It was a tiny company. It was in turnaround, highly fragmented market, technology-enabled market, fairly non-cyclical market, what I call a long and wide opportunity pathway. It's something that can continue to grow over time because the market's so fragmented and they're so small. Management has been in this business for most of their careers. Um, it's kind of an overlooked business. If they can get the tech right, it can become something completely different over time. So it remains pretty attractive to me, though I've owned it for a long time. It looks like a really interesting company. Okay, and what about the, the second company you'd like to talk about? I just wrote about in my investor letter, on, which is on my website, and I guess you saw the letter too, about Sinestec. It's a tiny position in my portfolio, and, and it should be because even though it's trading for le currently less than the value of its cash, it's still burning $2 million in cash per quarter. And it's really a publicly traded startup of sorts. It occupies a large part of my brain because I'm just fascinated by the product and I'm fascinated by this idea uh, of disruption. I'm, I'm fascinated by so many aspects of this, John. I apologize if I talk too long about it. The company makes a chemical that causes early menopause in female rats. So it as long as a female rat is drinking the rodenticide, cannot reproduce litters, and a rat's ability to produce, they produce like six litters a year, each with, you know, six to 12 pups. They reach sexual maturity at nine months. I mean, that's a big issue with rodents. Um, and as you can observe, poisons don't work. If, if poisons worked, we wouldn't have rat problems. So it's a continuous problem, particularly around, in, I live in New York City, in the subways, around construction sites, in agriculture, particularly also a problem it has is the, rod, the rodenticide, the poisons that are used have uh, impact wildlife as well. So a bird that eats a rat that has poison can injure or kill the bird. I mean, around the time that I was, this company came across my radar, Barry, the famed owl in Central Park, uh, died. It flew into a truck and 
the owl had rat poison in its system when it died. When I came across the company, I thought, this is the dumbest idea I've ever seen. And then I thought, I bet everyone thinks this is a terrible idea. And so I just started to scratch away at it a little bit more. And maybe I've convinced myself it's a good idea when it's not. Again, it's a small, small position. It's a problem that has been sustained for a long time, for as long as people have been around. One of the fascinating aspects to me is how possibly even evolutionary speaking, we're kind of wired to kill rats. I mean, nobody has a problem. You talk, I've talked to pest control managers and their basically response is we get customers asking for this from time to time, but if you're going to bait a rat, why not just kill it? And it's just so easy to say, let's just kill rats. But I, I think it's kind of au courant and I think there's an undergrowing undercurrent of people who are like, look, killing rats actually doesn't solve the problem and it's kind of inhumane. I mean, we kill probably kill thousands, if not millions, of rats a year in this on on the planet. And here's a way to actually control their populations. So I, I don't know. It, it's it's a it's an investment where there are a lot of pathways. I think there are more pathways to success than failure. I think some of the success pathways can be really long and really wide. But one of the risks associated with it is like this: you can go back when the, the product. It's only recently commercialized, but they've been testing it and studying it for a long time. And you can read in various trade magazines this idea that it's been the next big thing for many years. That's always a something you have to look out for cautiously. Anything that's been the next big thing, but it's been for many years, is probably not a big thing at all. But like I said, it fascinates me more for the narrative, for the bias discovery of how people think about killing rats, how people address this problem. It's kind of fascinated how a company that sells the absence of rats can uh, make a difference in an industry that gets paid for dead rats. Even though the dead rats and those dead rats creates this bias of success, you create lots of dead rats, you think you're it's working, but it's not. So there are all these biases involved in this in the business and industry that fascinate me. How has its products been received in the market? Are the sales really starting to get some traction? The company has new management. They they the founders, the board kicked out the founders in 2019. A new CEO took over in 2019. He joined the board and then took over. He's from the legal side. He worked at Starwood and Marriott for I think nearly two decades. He was a he was a lawyer for many years. He's an NYU lawyer. I'm married to an NYU lawyer, full disclosure. I talked to this guy, someone he used to work with before, who told me, um, said great things. He said, you know, he's, he's very smart. He's very strategic. He's very capable. He, he always wanted to be a CEO. He wanted to run a business. But as he said, like they don't, P&G doesn't hire the CEO out of the legal side, right? It's, it's, not an easy career path to go from the legal side to an operating executive. So I think that's why he took this opportunity as well. Uh, he seems and has indicated his own preference to sort of take this small company with a disruptive technology and see if it can really impact the way we address the rat problem. You know, it's not appropriate, again, talking to pest control managers around New York City, like it's not appropriate for a residence 
or a restaurant that needs to get rid of the rats immediately. But for industries and areas that can tolerate and understand they're always going to have a rat problem, they just want to limit it. I think that's where the opportunity lies. In agriculture, for example, in transportation, for example. It's just, it's just fascinating. <laughs> but it's, a, it's been around for a long time. You could read a lot of filings. They brought in a new management team. You asked how sales were growing. He has already exceeded sales of the prior management team. Cumulative sales of the entire manage, of the prior management team, he's already exceeded this year. But we're talking tiny amounts. It's off a tiny base. Ultimately, this will work when they sell a lot of units. I think they're, by my math, they need to sell over half a million units a year to get close to break even. And I don't even think they're selling 100,000 units a year yet. So it's very much a nascent startup, but it's something that, you know, could grow over time. And they are growing and I think they will sustain growth, but it's off such a low base. We'll know in three to five years if this business is sustainable and growing. And that's how long you would be prepared to keep holding it. Short answer, yes. I'd like to elaborate that when I make an investment, I run a fairly concentrated, you know, micro cap portfolio. The Quest resources I've owned since 2017, 2018, maybe. I don't look to to date my investments, right? I wanna I wanna own them for long periods of time. I don't like to make an investment until I fully understand it because I don't want to spend my time trading. I want to find good ideas and be a long-term owner of public businesses. The short answer is yes, and I could manage the risk by keeping it currently a small part of my portfolio, but I don't put anything into my portfolio unless I have an idea that it could be big someday. And would you just slowly build up, you know, being like just 1% of your portfolio, then take it from there? I've been investing for a long time personally, but I started my business in 2015. And when I started my business, I did it with the awareness that I've been professional analyst for you know over a dozen years, but I've never been a portfolio manager. So I knew there's a lot to learn about portfolio management. Anyone who's managing a portfolio with other people's money should understand that portfolio management and analysis are two very distinct strategies, very distinct practices. You can go all in on an investment right at the bat, trade around it, or, you know, I prefer to start with small positions. I don't want to take a small position unless I think there's an opportunity for it to to be a big position. Since this unfolds over time, and over time is the operative word and very important part of it, I like to watch how management operates, make sure they're operating in a way that is how I imagine. To a certain extent, investing is about projecting our ideas onto the future, and you can get your face handed to you either investing or any or, or dating or any part of your life when you project an idea that's very different from reality. That's why I study the past. That's why I talk to people who've worked with these folks before. That's why I want to follow things for long periods of time before I make an investment in it. I like to make sure that my projection is close to the possible outcomes. So a long answer to say, you know, I'm happy to track it. I'm happy to grow the investment. One of the lessons as a portfolio manager is um, it's just as important to be comfortable buying a stock on the way up as it is to add to it on the way down. Uh, There are plenty of other ideas and larger positions in my portfolio that I think 
have higher probabilities of cash flow generation, growth, and profitability. But this is one that's just tickled my brain. In all your years as an investor, what's the biggest lesson you feel you've learned that has helped you become better at managing money? I think the areas around portfolio management for me have been the most important things. I think for someone starting out as an investor, it's really starting just doing it, right? Experience, learning their own lessons while they go with an amount of money that they're comfortable losing because it's likely they're going to lose some along the way. The areas around portfolio management have been the most important thing and, you know, about understanding the difference between buying something a lot at first and scaling it over time. I mean, there are so many nuances to portfolio management that are can't be that can't really be summarized in a short conversation. Where can listeners go to find out more information about you and your fund? The investment management firm, the website's longcastadvisors.com. Love to hear from other investors. Love to hear from people who are looking for microcap-focused investment manager. I'd love to talk to business owners as well to understand what's going on in their operating environment. There's one thing I could say about my love for investing. It's that it really satisfies my curiosity and offers a way to look at the world through the lens of business, which I think is sort of an unbeatable opportunity that's available to anyone. No, I agree. It's a fascinating um, pursuit. Okay, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me.